Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we are going to talk about accelerationism, and we're happy to have Jade Parker on the show today. She is an independent cyber researcher, and she's been doing a lot of research on this topic, and I know that we're very excited to hear her thoughts on it. So first of all, welcome to the Loopcast, Jade. Thank you for having me, Chelsea. So why don't we just start off with talking about what accelerationism is, at least in your research. Okay. Um, so there are two different kinds of accelerationism that people are um, getting confused with right now. Um, one of them is the techno-industrial accelerationism, which comes from um, the British philosopher Nick Land. And then there's this kind of militant accelerationism. And I'm going to be talking about the militant accelerationism uh, because it's been sort of the uh, source of a lot of the terrorism that's been going on in the United States. And when I talk about this accelerationism, it's not an ideology. It's totally ideologically agnostic. Um, and it is a doctrine. So it's not a tactic and it's not really a strategy. Um, but it's composed of terrorism and insurgency, guerrilla warfare, nonviolent political manipulation and media manipulation. So obviously, you know, we've seen the, the terrorist aspect of it, um, and I'm going to get into that a little bit more later on. Um, the insurgency part of it is, you know, um, some of these groups, for example, the base, who are uh, an accelerationist group, you know, they're building bunkers around the country with, you know, supplies, right? And you have guerrilla warfare, specifically uh, William Lynn's fourth generation warfare. And where this diverges um, from, you know, just being about violence is that there's very much a nonviolent component to it, uh, which is m almost more important than the violence. Um, so we're talking about mani political manipulation. It's things like entryism. So like QAnon, for example, when you have these people who are coming into the government or, you know, Yang Gang when you have, you know, these swarms of people online trying to usurp the establishment, the political establishment, you know, to get their guy on stage because they think he's going to, you know, um, sort of be the political upset. Uh, so uh, that's sort of a really kind of an interesting um, aspect to it. But then probably the most important thing is the media manipulation. So a lot of the terrorism is specifically in order to manipulate the media uh, into driving certain narratives. And I'll get into that a little bit later. So the accelerationists themselves are bound by a shared desire for revolution. And ultimately, it will lead to the destruction of liberal democracy and global capitalism. Now, do both of these elements have to be present in their ideology or their motivation for carrying out attacks or being involved in this? No. As I said before, it's ideologically agnostic. So anybody who has ever had, you know, this, desire to bring down the system for whatever reason, um, you know, stick it to the man or, you know, whatever it is, that they can be involved in this higher cause. Um, there's also a metaphysical dimension, and I'll also get into that a little bit later, and that's more to do with an individual and societal emancipation from modernity. So if I were to give a definition of what accelerationism is, it's a doctrine of violent 
and nonviolent actions taken with the purpose of exploiting contradictions imminent to a political system in order to accelerate its destruction through the friction caused by its intrinsic features. Okay, so we're not actually talking about, you know, speeding things up, per se. Okay, all terrorism is going to, you know, cause some problems, right? And that's why, you know, that's why it works, right? It causes, um, you know, ill sentiment towards Muslims when you have, you know, uh, violent Islamists, you know, cause, you know, creating attacks. You know, it can destabilize and things, you know, cause just economic destructions. But what this really is, is using the system against itself. Um, so if you think about the meaning of acceleration, and let me tell you, it comes originally from Nietzsche, so in the German. Um, and what he's talking about is, he uses a physics term, right? And it's about, you know, the intrinsic and physical increase in spe the speed of an event or a process, you know, to facilitate the faster track of something. Um, so in this way, it has to become, like I said, from inside the system, which is what differentiates it from something like revolutionary vanguardism or coup d'etats, uh, because this is just sort of overthrowing the system and, you know, replacing it, um, as opposed to dissolving the system from within the mechanisms of the system. Um, and the actions of the revolutionaries provide the accelerant. Uh, and, of course, you need an inner, you know, this momentum, which is what they're trying to build. Um, so on that note, um, I should comment that there are groups they call themselves accelerationists that are not really accelerationists. Um, or at least they haven't proven themselves to be accelerating anything. Um, and I think it's because they themselves don't quite understand what it is. So, for example, there, there was a, there's a fascist forum that has been shut down called Iron March. And on Iron March came a lot of these uh, accelerationist groups globally um, in the United States. We have Adam Waffen Division. So, and Adam Waffen Division has, you know, overseas counterparts like Stoning Creek Division, Fury Creek Division, Adam Waffen Division, Deutschland, um, et cetera. And these groups, you know, they, they have propaganda, they do stickering, um, and, you know, they try to carry out terrorist attacks. But as I mentioned earlier, they're not synonymous. Terrorism is, is not the same as accelerationism. It's just one component of it. Um, and you really have to be targeting a specific system in order for it to come within the system itself, right? Because it's a force multiplier. So right now, the true accelerationists really are targeting the United States. And the idea is that if you can bring down the United States, um, you bring down global capitalism, but all these other liberal democracies in the West can't really sustain themselves without our protection. And so the logic is then they themselves will collapse. So does that mean that only accelerationists within the United States are contributing to, you know, this accelerationism? And the answer is no. If you look at New Zealand and Brendan Caird's attack on the mosque, you'll see in his manifesto that he's talking about accelerationism and he's talking about tactics of accelerationism. And, you know, one of the things that he talks about is the desire to ban guns. And that's a big uh, focus for these guys. And that's also what makes it you know, very much targeting the United States. Because what they want is 
gun control, specifically the banning of assault rifles, and they want social media censorship, which is one of the reasons they're putting their manifestos in these little communities. And it's one of the reasons also that they're trying to be so ostentatious about um, you know, their actions online. Because the idea is that if you can you know, make arguments justifying the erosion of you know, principles that the country is founded upon, particularly to resist tyranny, right? the First Amendment and the Second Amendment, even though these are not um, you know, banning assault rifles is not necessarily, um, you know, not necessarily what's meant by the Second Amendment. Although I'm not, you know, a constitutional scholar, and I'm also not political. Um, I'm just saying that it's more about the arguments, you know, against these principles of free speech and the right to bear arms that you know. Um, they're sort of going for, which is why you'll see in a lot of accelerationist attacks, they're using guns, uh, assault rifles. Um, and obviously, the use of uh, the internet is, is you know, critical to this form of accelerationism. Um, and, and the reason that I call this coalition, I call this coalitional accelerationism, um, because in the future, there may be other forms of, you know, accelerationism. So in these countries, like I mentioned, you know, there are accelerationist groups, right? And while right now they may not be, you know, accelerating anything in their country, but eventually they might figure it out how to, right? Because for us, our weakness, you know, our, our weak points are, you know, the media, these, um, you know, the, our constitutional rights, you know, this, this sort of violence and this hype and our, our uh, political polarization, right? And that's not present in, you know, uh, parliamentary democracy. Overseas, like in you know, in the UK, they have different problems, um, and the attacks that you know the these far right groups are, are carrying out, you know, um, could eventually you know target them and uh, target you know like those weaknesses, and it may not be necessary for them to form coalitions across various ideologies, which is what they're doing now, which is what I'll um, talk about. So, how would you? distangle all of this it as you said in your opinion there are different types of accelerationism so is there a way of unpacking the different types and categorizing them to make it more understandable um so the technological though the techno-industrial accelerationism really doesn't have anything to do with um the terrorism except um there's two points at which it's uh it's relevant Okay, um, both of them originate in Nietzsche's Will to Power, uh, in his 1887 essay called uh, The Strong of the Future. And Nietzsche observed that science and capitalism had transformed, um, you know, labor exploitation into a set of means. And this had two implications, one of which is that society had become um, beholden to the interest of capitalism. The second is that technology provided this emancipatory process for the emergence of, you know, what he called the, you know, the Ubermensch, this new man, the Superman, um, or the strong of the future, and it's as a result of the irreversible redundancy in the labor pool. So this technological development provided society with a process to accelerate the emancipation of its participants from the generation of capital. And the difference really between uh, techno-industrial accelerationism and coalitional accelerationism is this idea of emancipation and the differences between these concepts of emancipation and the will to power and how to achieve, how to achieve that. 
So, the philosophy behind them are not the easiest thing to explain, um, but I'm going to do my best. So, how should I start this? All right. So, there was a French philosopher called Henry Bergson, and he had this concept called Elan Vital, which is the vital impulse, in a book he wrote called The Creative Evolution. And the idea is that the phenomenon of evolution comes from a, a simple, original, vital impulse. And it's what causes things to go and, you know, turn into different species, individuals, organs, um, you know, different things. So there's something within us, in all living things, that, you know, for some reason have, you know, this sort of creativity of, you know, always becoming something different. Um, so, Giles Deleuze and Felix Gutierrez um, took this, took this concept, right, um, within their concept of mechanic desire. And for them, desire is the fundamental, you know, ontological principle that the whole world and every individual and all living beings are always in the process of becoming or coming into something um, or, or advancing. And so, this inherent Desire, inherent to this desire is the production of new things, right? Um, and, you know, they say that, you know, desire um, is machines. And, you know, they're not talking metaphorically. They're talking, you know, um, literally, right? Because part of this is about, you know, production. So what Land does, Nick Land, um, is he takes out all of this uh, Bergsonian um, vitalism, and he sort of wants to take out every human aspect of it because he views emancipation as capital autonomization. So the farther you can push capitalism and, you know, have technology, you know, um, sort of taking, you know, taking humans out of this equation, out of this feedback loop um, where, you know, the, the machines can make the money and, um, you know, it pushes everything forward, kind of. Um, that that's how you dominate yourself. So it comes back to this idea of the will to power. So how do you dominate yourself and others is that, you know, through the creation of these technologies and through capitalism, right, that finally, you know, a man can become free. But in that process, man has to sort of erase themselves. So it destroys political cultures and traditions, experiences, personalities, um, all things that sort of make humans human in the sense that, um, you know, it's absolute self-dissolution. And, you know, the end of the process is this, you know, very nihilistic, um, you know, view of the world because in his, you know, in his, um, in his view, it's really all about, you know, getting people out, out of the system, right? Um, and these man-made processes, you know, dominate man and others. And that's how, you know, men are, are free, kind of. Um, but with coalitional accelerationism, it's the opposite of that. So Italian fascist Giulia Vola critiqued Nietzsche uh, in his book, Ride the Tiger, because Nietzsche stops at imminence, right? Like the only way that you can overcome, um, you, you know, yourself and others is, you know, through the self, um, self-dissolution. And Evola says, well... Well, no. You know, there's another way to do this, right? 
So in order to overcome yourself, you, well, you can just become, you know, like a god. You can aspire to become, you know, aspire to godliness, essentially. Um, and how you do this is through conflict. And, you know, you become a warrior. And becoming a warrior, become a hero or a martyr, right? And you can sort of see little bits of this in, um, there's a, you know, an accelerationist group that's, um, called Bull Patrol, you know, and they put out these little things saying, you know, St. Bowers or St. Parent or St., you know, whoever, um, which are, you know, the people who are carrying out, you know, their acceleration attacks. Um, so it does give this idea of, you know, these are heroes or, you know, or in some cases martyrs, right? And that comes from French anarchist syndicalist George Sorel because he took this uh, Bergsonian um, concept of Elan Vital, and, and I laugh because when they asked Bergson about Sorel's interpretation of Elan Vital, Bergson was like, yeah, that's not really what I meant, but, you know, you know him. Um, and so, basically, what Sorel says is that this, there's this vital impulse within everyone that moves individuals and societies, right? It compels them forward, and it's, you know, the emancipation of the soul. So you harness this, you know, vital impulse for violent action. And how do you do that? Through the use of myth. So George Sorrell had the use of myth, and his myth was the myth of the general strike. So if you can convince laborers from all over the country um, to, uh, you know, that there's going to be a general strike, then you're going to materialize this general strike, right? Um, and he really believed in the idea of emancipation through violence, right? Um, and that's where Evola, Evola got it. And so these accelerationists, the accelerationists of today, took Evola's ideas, ascension to you know to heroism, and his, he has a book called Metaphysics of War which basically explains the process of how someone can ascend, uh, you know, to heroism or um, to, to godliness, right? And so they created this training program, basically, where you undergo trials and tribulations, and you're placed in, you know, this test to, uh, for, you know, physically, mentally, spiritually developed in order, you know, to transcend your original self. And that's how you dominate yourself and others is through this transcendence through to your similarity of um, Olympic gods. So they view themselves as a physical incarnation of these primordial gods. Um, and they view uh, certain traditions along the way also as carrying these ancient truths. And so they view themselves as also carrying along these ancient truths. Um, and you'll also notice that they all, they usually have a fitness regimen, uh, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, so, but, but what's the, the intersection between Nick Land's accelerationism and the accelerationism that I'm talking about is that Nick Land's accelerationism comes to an absolute nihilism, right? And through this absolute nihilism, Militancy is the answer, right? It provides the hope, the transcendence, uh, as a reclamation of the human spirit and, you know, individ and uh, culture, right? Uh, 
So what um, people from the neo-reactionary milieu did, and you know, some of the eco-fascists as well, uh, you know, they picked up Kaczynski. And what does Kaczynski say? He says, okay, you got to bring down the entire system in its, you know, in its entirety. It's the only hope. Right? And then from Kaczynski, they go to Savitri Devi in her, uh, The Lightning and the Sun. She's probably the first to mention, um, ex you know, acceleration in respect to, the, you know, the system that's going to bring itself down. And uh, James Mason, you know, Siege, which... Pretty much all the accelerationism, uh, accelerationists for a while were saying, you know, read Siege, read Siege, and it became sort of like this meme. But if you actually do read Siege, it's not really a doctrine that he's talking about. It's not really about accelerationism, although um, in a very, very mild sense it might be, but it's more like tactics for accelerationism, you know, um, rather than a comprehensive, you know, um, strategy. Would you say um, that it's okay. correct to categorize accelerationists or accelerationism as an idea of a group, or is it looking at it as a movement? How do we conceptualize it in that aspect? So what's interesting about accelerationism is that, like I said, um, it can be adopted across the ideological um, spectrum, and they've made concerted efforts uh, around three uh, poles. And there may be a fourth pole in religious fundamentalism that I haven't found yet, um, but I'll talk about the ones that I have found, which is in fascism, socialism, and anarchism. Okay? And one of the tactics that these guys use is, is they want to use these kind of brands as feeders to local action. So when we talk about the base, or we talk about Adam Waffen division. You can think about that in terms of like branding, because people think, "Oh, this is cool, right?" Um, but you know, as soon as Adam Waffen becomes you know compromised, or the base becomes compromised, you know, the accelerationists can always just put up a you know change their flags, um, you know, and and you know continue because it's really about getting offline, you know, uh, you know, forming groups online and then getting people offline into insurrectionary cells, um, small insurrectionary cells. So for the base, you know, that might be three people. Um, you know, for Adam Watson Division, um, you know, it, it might be as small as one person or, you know, as large as, you know, um, you know six or something, right? Um, and you see that also in the anarchist milieu and the socialist milieu, right? So... They're trying to get people, it doesn't matter what you believe in, right? Um, they're using these polls to attract people, but you don't necessarily have to believe in anything that they're believing in other than this idea of a revolution, right? Um, so, and they also are, you know, creating these feeder groups. And to be honest, I'm not sure exactly how successful, um, how successful they've been, um, but at one time, the anarchists wanted, uh, were calling for people to form cells in every major American city, right? And the socialists have um, created this sort of hierarchy system um, at the local, national, um, and uh, international level. Okay, so they've got um, a committee for Europe and then for certain countries in Europe. 
And then they have one for, um, for North America, you know, in the United States, and then, you know, at, at local levels, right? Um, and so through this, it is devolved control. So they don't have that much control over their insurrectionary cells, but they are trying to create insurrectionary cells, right? Because what's the value of an insurrectionary cell? You know, they can wage attacks. They can prepare for an insurgency. You know, um, they can help with the guerrilla warfare, you know, whatever. But it doesn't do them any good if everyone's just online clicking around, right? It doesn't do them any good just to, you know, send memes or, you know, be sort of unserious about this. Because they are. They are very serious about it, um, bringing down the United States. So, so that's the way that I would think about it is more like brands being used as feeders to local action. And would you say the ultimate goal is causing chaos in the U.S. political system to bring down this system and accelerate this idea of a, of a different system, whatever that may be? Or so, so basically all these different groups, none of them have the same you know, conception of what happens after the collapse, right? Some people want, you know, a fascist state, or other people want, uh, you know, a socialist utopia, or some people don't even care what it is, right? Um, I think they believe initially that after the collapse, it'll be formed into, um, there's an anarchist called Hakeem Bey, and he had this idea of the temporary autonomous zones, which are, you know, basically tribalized um, little groups on, you know, on land, and they sort of govern themselves. Um, and across the ideological milieu, that's kind of um, what these guys have in mind. Uh, but obviously, you know, they want their ideology or, um, you know, their interests, you know, to win out. And that's also where you get back to the Nietzsche's, um, you know, will to power. Because keep in mind that the Superman is not, you know, this is not an egalitarian thing. Right? When we're talking about emancipation, we're not talking about emancipating everybody. We're talking about the emancipation of the strong, right? You know, the weak should fear the strong. So that's something to keep in mind, right? So where they might say, okay, you know, we want these temporary autonomous zones, everything govern themselves, you know, and eventually it's, you know, the strong will overcome the weak, and each group or each ideological, you know, um, tendency believe that they're going to be the strong ones, right? Um, but for now, they need each other to bring down the system. So would I say that, you know, their ultimate goal is bringing down the United States. And they're doing that by manipulating the media to a large degree through these terrorist attacks. Um, let's, let's talk about that a bit. How do you, okay. in your research, distinguish an attack associated with this movement ideology, whatever you want to call it, because I feel like the definition is so loaded on accelerationism. But how do you distinguish what's an attack that is involved with accelerationism and those that are not? So it's a little bit complicated because of the way that they're operating. So because so much of their activity is dependent online for recruitment, and that's not just ideological, you know, recruitment, trying to get people, um, you know, to become accelerationists. It's also them going into these various online communities and trying to convince people to carry out attacks. So when you see these incel attacks, you know, the accelerationists have gone into the incel community and are trying to get people 
to, you know, join the revolution. They're trying to get people, you know, to carry out attacks. Um, and sometimes that's, you know, directly, right, sort of like what ISIS did um, in their sort of, quote, unquote, you know, remote-controlled attacks. But other times, it's just sort of generalized, you know, incitement. And they're doing that across, you know, across these communities. Um, and so some of these guys may not even realize that they're being used by accelerationists, which is what makes it complicated, right? Um, but then, and another example of that is QAnon, for example. Like, they went into QAnon to try to get people, to turn people to violence, right? Um, and why don't and you quickly, you, yeah, why don't you quickly just give our listeners, for those that might not know what QAnon is, a little brief on what QAnon is, just so they have a context. Um, QAnon is an, a conspiracy theory about um, that there's a deep state cabal that's trying to take down the president. Um, and this guy who works for NSA supposedly is working with, um, you know, with the president to... Um, to take down the deep state. But it's gotten increasingly dark, right? It's very much cultic. And, um, you know, they've had murderers come out of it, right? There was a guy not too long ago who was accused of murdering, you know, the head of a mafia family, right? Um, and, you know, why did he do it? Well, for QAnon. Well, for me, you know, when I see accelerationists going into the QAnon community, um, you know, it sort of raises my eyebrows about, you know, um, you know, the link to, you know, this guy and you know, what they're doing, right? Because I originally got onto this research. I was working as the director of global analysis um, at a very um, powerful social media software company. Okay, and I was tracking foreign interference and up, leading up to the 2018 midterms. And one of the things that really caught my eye was interference with QAnon. And at the time, I thought it was only going to be Russia, um, but it turned out, you know, uh, to also have this violent non-state actor element to it. Um, so, yeah. Um, so they're going into these various communities, and they're trying to rile people up, basically. Um, and so some people may not realize that what they're, you know, trying to carry out, that when they carry out attacks, it's not just for their own, you know, ideology. It also does tie into, you know, to this broader cause. But then you also have people who are very well aware that, you know, their attacks are for accelerationism, right? You know, anyone from some of these groups. But you also have to look at, you know, um, who they're targeting, and, you know, the time sequence, right? So you have, like, El Paso, right? And El Paso is a white nationalist, you know? And so you have all these news articles about, you know, how white nationalism is, you know, um, terrorist, uh, white nationalist terrorism um, is on the rise and, and all this stuff, right? You know, and then 15 hours later, you have the socialist, you know, revolutionary socialist, you know, um, going on a mass shooting, right? And like I said, it, it's, not, it's not just one ideology, but that aspect of his, um, you know, that aspect of him, the fact that he was a socialist and was a member of Antifa, you know, was not really covered um, in the media coverage, right? Or it was, but it was, you know, secondary 
to people's preconceived notions, right? You know, they see, oh, it's a white guy. Oh, it must be about, you know, this misogyny. Um, and I'm not saying he's not a misogynist. I'm not saying he didn't, um, you know, participate in toxic online communities. You know, I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that this is very much terrorism as theater, right? So they're doing this to drive certain narratives to exploit biases and, um, and you know, they're sort, of, they're sort of succeeding. And what's really interesting is that they're kind of modeling their paradigm off of um, Najib Bakr uh, Najib's 2004 Management of Savagery and what Zarqawi did in Iraq, right? So use by, using violence to animate sectarian conflict. Except that this time it's not um, Shia and Sunni, it's the Democrats and the Republicans specifically over, as I mentioned earlier, gun control and social media censorship. So when they, you know, use assault rifles or they show up at the gun rally in Richmond, you know, and, um, you know, experts and, you know, journalists now, you know, paint the entire pro, you know, Second Amendment rally as a white supremacist rally, right? Um, and, and, you know, these guys want gun control, because they want this crackdown because they believe that that will spark the Civil War. And that's really what they're going for. That's how they're going to collapse the United States, is by exciting Civil War. And they think that the social media censorship and the gun control can do that. Now, whether or not they're going to be successful, I'm not sure. Um, I hope not. Um, but it is really to, you know, to butt the, the Democrats and the Republicans against each other. Would you say that the roots of violent accelerationism stem from the U.S., or do we see outside influences also attaching themselves to this movement? Um, so there is a foreign influence element to this. But part of it is also, like I said, this is, this is partially a psychological operation. Right? You know, this is a psychological operation first, and it's terrorism secondly. Right? It's a lot about manipulating the media. And it's a lot about using, you know, these ideas of white nationalism, and everybody is a white nationalist, and, you know, white supremacy, and scaring people, you know. And then on the other side, you know, if somebody's going to take away your guns and, you know, and, and do all this. And you have people who are, you know, very much opportunists and grifters who, you know, show up to help drive these narratives. And one of the narratives, obviously, that, you know, some grifters and opportunists have latched onto is, you know, Russiagate, right? Um, you know, and this resistance movement, right? So anytime anyone mentions Russia, everybody, you know, either rolls their eyes, <laughs> um, you know, or starts believing in conspiracy. And... And they also believe that, you know, Russia has a, lot, a far larger um, impact on certain things than maybe they actually do, right? Um, so when I say that Russia is involved, it's not necessarily that, you know, Russia is directing attacks or doing this or doing that. It's that every, all the leaders of this network are connected to what's called the Global Revolutionary Alliance, Okay. And the Global Revolutionary Alliance was established by Alexander Dugan 
on the, uh, January 1st of 2001. Now, Alexander Dugan was, I guess, an advisor to um, President Putin, but his influence has waned. And here's what I believe is going on, although I'm not entirely sure. Um, all these guys, all these leaders, are very into his idea of Eurasianism. Okay, and it very much fits within what they perceive, what they want the future government governance structure to be, which is an imperium. Okay, so that these supermen or these new men that they're going to create through this bloody civil war and the collapse of democracy and the collapse of global capitalism, they're going to create an imperium of kind of like the the heroic warriors to govern everybody, right? Um, and that very much fits with Dugan's idea of Eurasianism, where you know every little part of different parts of the Earth are, are controlled by for their own um, people. Okay, I don't think that Dugan. Um, I don't think that's what's going to happen, right? I think that the Russian intelligence services are using Dugan's network for their own purposes, which is just, you know, destabilization of, you know, the United States and the West, and have really no intention at all of implementing Eurasianism, right? Because, like I said, um, you know, his, his influence has waned, and there's really no reason to believe, um, you know, that the Kremlin is going to, you know, follow through on that. But I don't know if Dugan realizes that he's the fall guy. I don't know if the, if the Russian intelligence services, um, I mean, obviously, I wouldn't know. Um, but that it would be sort of the um, the foreign element is that they're all connected to this this global revolutionary alliance. And getting back to that, the global revolutionary alliance um, is a bunch of these little groups, these uh, you know revolutionary groups. Um, it, the, uh, the discontented of the world, you know, unite. Right. So he was trying to sort of gather gather all these things. Um, and what's really interesting to me is that all of a sudden, at the end of 2017, Iron March goes down. And keep in mind, okay, Iron March, this fascist uh, forum, was founded by um, this guy named Slavros. And Slavros lives in Moscow. Slavros' dad works for um, their Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs. Right, so he's, his dad's a civil servant um, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. His grandfather was an extraordinarily powerful man in the USSR on their Politburo. And throughout Slavos's life, you know, he um, he's very much, uh, you know, a fascist, but he's also very pro-Russia. So he's trying to establish this third Rome, um, and usually. The Russian government frowns upon, you know, being a neo-Nazi or, you know, frowns upon these uh, subversive elements. But he was able, but Slavish was able to run his fascist website for, you know, six years out of Moscow. And his dad works for the government, right? Um, so it's a little bit curious, you know, um, what he's up to. But even he has had a very long relationship with Dugan. You know, going back since um, they were members of a similar party, a political party. 
um, you know, and Slavros uh, had formed a group called the Iron Youth. Um, and their whole idea, right, is the defense or the creation of a third row. Um, yeah, so that to me is, you know, the fact that Russia would be involved in this. And we know that Russia has in the past, you know, funded these political movements, you know, these far-right nationalist political movements. But we haven't seen them, you know, being at all involved in, um, you know, these terrorist networks, right? Uh, and using sort of terrorist networks essentially as a proxy. So they may not have total control over the proxy, and they don't even have, you know, much control over the proxy because the whole idea is, um, you know, decentralized self, right? Um, you know, these all these insurrectionary cells. So, you know, they can't really, you know, retain very much control over them at all. And most of the people involved have no idea, you know, that that the leaders of this network are so connected, you know, to, uh, to Russia um, or to the Global Revolutionary Alliance, for that matter. How would you say the ideology movement of accelerationism is exploited and used via the online space? Because you have mentioned the online space being an element of it, but then it going underground. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, can you clarify what you mean? So you had mentioned that we see a lot of elements of accelerationism online through different platforms, maybe Twitter, the different chans, 8chan, 4chan, etc., and that it's the online space is a tool to promote ideas and drop seeds of accelerationism. But then you had mentioned earlier in the show that once those seeds are planted, so to speak, that the ultimate movement tends to be more underground and, and small cells like the base, for instance. Right. I mean, most of their activities for recruitment, you know, are online. So particularly, you know, Telegram or Discord or Twitter or Facebook, um, you know, or, or 4chan or 8chan, um, you know, but they try to get them into small groups. So unless they're, you know, when they're particularly targeting specific people, um, you know, and what they're trying to do is get them to, you know, play on their grievances, right? So you might have someone who absolutely hates the LGBT community. And if they can get that guy, uh, you know, to carry out an attack using an assault rifle on the LGBT community, right, they've achieved part of their objective. And whether that guy realizes that he's being involved in accelerationism, it's sort of immaterial, right? And going back to this metaphysical aspect of it, you know, George Sorrell didn't care what happened after these guys got violent, right? He didn't, the, the whole point of the general strike is not that the general strike actually happens necessarily in the mind of each person, right? It's to rile them up, you know, so they see themselves in this archetype of being a warrior or a hero. And their rationality is overcome with emotion. It's overcome with this vital impulse. You know, the vital impulse that, you know, moves individuals and societies, right? Um, you know, whether you want to call it, um, you know, the, the human spirit or self-determination or whatever. The end goal, this is, not a, this is not a rational thing, right? It very much plays on emotion. 
and it very much plays in how people see themselves and, you know, the future that they want to create, right? So it doesn't really matter if they actually create the future that they want to create, right? So if you can get, you know, somebody to believe in, you know, certain myths or, you know, to believe that they are, you know, a warrior hero or a revolutionary hero, right, for whatever revolution that person wants, right, whether it's the elimination of LGBT uh, people or it's, you know, or, or whatever, right, that in itself is what makes, you know, this person, you know, a, a hero. It's the conflict, right, that someone would overcome themselves to, you know, um, to do this. So, yes, they go into these communities to, you know, sort of rile people up, but it's also very much, you know, you know targeted towards, towards certain people, and they don't really care what the grievance is, right? They don't, they don't care at all. They're just trying to get people to carry out attacks so that, so that they can, um, you know, essentially coerce the government into, you know, enacting policies that, um, you know, cause social media censorship or gun control. One of the big questions would be, in my mind, how do we counter or fight violent extremism through the accelerationist perspective if there isn't this unified group and, and completely unified idea of it? Like, how do we counter this type of violent extremism? So this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of the show, in that so much of this is dependent on driving narratives, right? Um, and because the whole idea of accelerationism is using the system against itself, right? But in this little, you know, microcosm, we are the system, right? They are targeting us, and by us, I mean the field of terrorism studies, you know, experts, the media, you know, and political activists, right? Because they're trying to exploit biases. Um, and, you know, we can change that, right? If we can get people to, um, well, okay, let me take a step back for a second. They're betting that people are going, that the system is so corrupt and degenerate that people are going to choose themselves over the greater good. All right? That's what they're betting on. And that's why they also, you know, the replacements are all very collectivist, right? So whether it's fascism or socialism, you know, the you know, replacement governmental system forces people to put the collective over the personal self, right? As opposed to in liberal democracy where you know, individualism is, you know, reign supreme. So they're betting that, you know, that we're going to do that, right? That that's how you accelerate is by getting people, um, you know, in the media, you know, to amplify things. And that's why, you know, I haven't published for a year, right? I've been working on this for a year, and I haven't published it because I didn't want it to be used against us. I didn't want to accelerate the accelerationism. Because as soon as, you know, all these people realize that, okay, there's actually a plan, because for a while, for a while there, um, you know, in the far right at least, 
you know, people are starting to lose hope in their movement, right? Because they're like, there's no strategy, there's no nothing. And so if I come along and say, well, actually, um, there's other things going on that you're totally unaware of, right? And that's another thing that I should mention, is that the people in these various milieu are not aware of what's going on. Right, so I've you know conducted interviews with leaders of a lot of the leading um, you know white nationalist organ you know uh, groups, um, you know, and, and they're aware of their connection, you know, uh, aware of certain things um, within their own milieu and how it relates to accelerationism, but they're not aware of what's going on in the socialist milieu or this uh, you know anarchist milieu like at all, right? So they were really surprised when this revolutionary socialist guy, uh, you know, in Dayton goes on the shooting spree. And they say, oh, well, maybe we just inspired him. But that's not, um, that's not really what happened, right? Um, so how can we so actually, when I, oh, like on ahead. that point, how can we actually know that it, it wasn't maybe a different ideology or political leaning or so forth that, had an attack, but like you said that they assumed it was inspired, that they had inspired this individual. So how do we know that it really isn't just a succession of inspired attacks that are similar but slightly different depending on who the attacker is versus accelerationism? Part of it is also because of this meet the, um, the conflicting narrative, right? Because that's the point, is that if you have, you know, one media ecosystem talking about white nationalism and the scourge of white nationalism, right, and it plays into their biases that, um, you know, all white guys who commit terrorist attacks are white nationalists. And then you have, you know, this guy who's a member of Antifa committed an attack, and in the conservative, you know, media ecosystem with, you know, some people who believe that Antifa are terrorists, right, that's what inflames them. Right? So it's about driving these narratives. And having them back-to-back really shows, uh, you know, the extent of kind of biases, right? And it's not just in that, you know, in that instance. It's not just in El Paso or Dayton, right? They did it again um, in New York, right? So you have this black nationalist um, who goes on a stabbing spree at the home of a rabbi, right? And then 13 hours later, you have a white nationalist shoot up a church in, you know, in Texas, right? So it's about crafting these narratives around, you know, the differences between, um, you know, when the shooter is black, when the shooter is white, and also who the victims are. So, um, you know, where there's more sympathy for, um, you know, Jewish, you know, um, Jewish victims or Christians, right? And the disparity, you know, the disparities between them. And the reactions that that provokes. And that's really what they're going for. And that's not a coincidence at all because that's part of the strategy. Because so much of this is dependent on using the system against itself. Like I said, like that's the whole point of accelerationism. It's not just these terrorist attacks. It's this whole comprehensive thing. How do you see the system and also potentially media coverage? Because, of course, there's a lot of research on how media and terrorism go hand in hand as communicative aspect and element. So how do you see the system in general, including the media, as either a positive or a problem in relation to accelerationism? 
How do I see this positive? Um, or a positive. Well, so they're very much being targeted, as are we. Like I, as I mentioned, this entire psychological operation is contingent on, um, you know, on us partially, right, as experts, because it's not just about destroying the system. It's as you destroy the system, you also they also want to delegitimize it, right? So when you have experts going on CNN saying, okay, this is white nationalist terrorism, right, and this is like, you know, there's a huge rise in, in white nationalist terrorism, which is true to some extent, right, because they're sending out these guys to carry out attacks to make it look like there's a rise in white nationalist terrorism. And that is separate from the ideological proliferation of white nationalism. So this is different than that. You know, there is a proliferation in, you know, uh, white nationalist ideologies and malignant ideologies of, you know, of various kinds, right? But there's, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, those people are going to carry out terrorist attacks. And you can look at the insults um, as, you know, as sort of an example, that, you know, they had a couple guys who were in contact with these other guys, um, with these accelerationists, and they go out and kill people, and then it suddenly becomes, you know, this big trend, right? And people start demonizing, you know, the, the incels. And it's not to say that, you know, it's not a toxic community. Of course it's a toxic community. That's what makes it easy for them, you know, easy for them to be demonized, right? Um, but in reality, you know, they're not terrorists, but, you, you know, you get people on Twitter, for example, saying how, you know, they'd be totally fine with, you know, incels killing themselves or people killing incels or, or whatever, right? And part of that goes back to, you know, experts or uh, media figures or, um, you know, people with authority in society telling people that these are terrorists, right? And that these, you know, that the people who are committing these attacks are representative of, you know, this community of, you know, thousands and thousands of people. And it's the same with the fascists, right? And it's the same with the socialists and the anarchists, right? Most anarchists, most socialists, and even most fascists are not terrorists, right? They're extremists. You know, their ideologies may be intrinsically violent, right? But that is very different from saying, okay, we're going to go indiscriminately kill people, right? And if you look at these, if you look at some of these communities after the terrorist attacks, you know, they were telling people, you know, this is not good for our movement, right? Like, these are bad optics, you know. Uh, we don't want to come across as, you know, criminals or terrorists, Right? We're trying to, you know, promote the cause of our people, right? And committing terrorist attacks isn't going to help us. Right? And that was the majority of the, you know, that was a lot of the fascist community at the beginning. And so now, you know, uh, things have changed a little bit and, you know, accelerationism has become much more popular. So when I say, you know, the media is involved, it can be, you know, it can be a negative, obviously, um, but it can also be a positive. Because, like I said, the whole system is composed of people. And, you know, once people realize that they're being targeted for the violence, right, that they're the ones that, you know, are, are helping to bring down the system, that maybe, you know, once they're aware of these things, they can, you know, um, reorient themselves 
to be maybe not less, um, you know, um, not as destructive in these in these ways, right? But you know, like I said, part of it's about delegitimizing, you know, expertise, for example. So when someone goes and says, okay, you know, here's a trend in white nationalist terrorism, right? Because there's because the, the accelerationists are sending out their white nationalists to go commit the attack, right? And then all of a sudden, you have black nationalists, you know, and people are like, oh, where did this come from, right? And you have incels, and, you know, um, and you have whoever. And I imagine, um, because they penetrated so many different, you know, unusual communities, that, you know, to drive certain narratives, that, you know, we're going to see, you know, who knows? Who knows who we're going to see, right? But the idea of, you know, um, kind of undermining, uh, public trust in expertise is very much part of this, right? Um, and undermining trust in the media amongst the public, right? And, you know, and cultivating this idea of a civil war on one side and on the other side cultivating, um, you know, white nationalism. And I also want to point out one additional thing that I should have mentioned earlier. And that's, there's a, there's a report out by Data and Society um, a little while ago. And Russia's involvement, uh, you know, their online activities, they would go to these political groups um, and, you know, they didn't really have an impact on changing the political ideologies of these groups. But what they did do was they made all the groups that they were in contact with more anti-Semitic, okay? And this anti-Semitism runs through all of this accelerationism. That's how they're doing a lot of their recruitment. Um, and whether it's, you know, in the socialist milieu or it's in the anarchist milieu or it's in the fascist milieu, you know, there's very much this focus on, you know, eliminating Jews and eliminating Jewish influence. And that goes back to this network that's behind all this, um, um, all these activities, right? Um, which we can talk about in a little bit, or we don't have to talk about it at all. I don't know, up to you. In your opinion, what would you say is the most problematic issue of accelerationism that you've seen, especially for the future of this movement and the future of potential violence in the name of accelerationism? Or in the name of the goal, let's say, that they are aiming for of taking down the system? So what's especially problematic to me is um, that we're coming up into an election, right? And tensions are already going to be high, and rhetoric is going to, you know, um, be especially tense. And one of the one of the narratives that they're trying to craft is socialist against, you know, uh, fascist, right? So one side calls the other side a fascist, and the other side calls, um, you know, calls them socialists, right? And you know, this, this rhetoric. Um, that's highly inflammatory. Um, you know, uh, I don't think it's going to be. I don't think it's going to turn out well, particularly if you add escalated violence into it, right? So if you have all these insurrectionary cells, and I, and I don't know how many they have. Um, you know, we obviously know that they that they have some, um, but you know, we don't we don't exactly know what they have planned, and it's very possible that they can escalate. You know, these, this violence and make the rhetoric much worse. So that, to me, is something that I'm, you know, really concerned about as we go through the election, because that's one of the, you know, that's their big thing, is disrupting the, you know, the discourse and the political process 
right? Because if they can drive, um, you know, the gun control stuff, the censorship stuff, they can increase tensions between um, various races, various religions, you know, what have you. And they're doing that through violence. But they're doing it, you know, through the response to the violence as well, right? That's, that's why it's accelerating, um, because it's a force multiplier. So, you know, whether they kill three people doesn't really matter if, you know, the entire system, you know, every, every newspaper, you know, runs with this terrorist attack, right? And, you know, that leads to, you know, all these other things that we've been discussing the whole time. And that's something that I really worry about as we go into an election, and you know, after the election. You know, because, uh, you know, while I very much hope there's not a civil war, and I very much, um, you know, kind of doubt that there will be, although I do think that it will, um, you know, conditions could, you know, rapidly deteriorate, um, you know, between various people. But, you know, they're trying to incite a civil war, and they're making people believe that there could be a civil war, which is more important than whether or not I believe that there could be a civil war, right? Because a lot of, because it's all about perceptions, and all of this is about perception management. So whether or not there's, you know, it's rational to think that there's going to be a civil war, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you have a bunch of people who do believe that it's going to be a civil war, right? And it's about that myth, like I said, willing things into reality, right? And they do that with the civil war, and they do that with the white supremacy stuff. Um, and, and, you know, they're using these myths and, and you know, to shape public uh, perceptions. So you're a new guest to the Loopcast, and we like to give our guests a moment to maybe touch upon something that we haven't been able to touch on during the talk or wrap something up with a really final statement or final thought. So before we finalize the show, I wanted to pass over that opportunity to you. Hmm. That's a really good question. I think that what I would focus on um, is that, you know, we can't control what the terrorists do. And I have full faith in the U.S. government's ability to stop terrorist attacks. I, I have full faith in, you know, the U.S. cyber counterterrorism operations. I have full faith in them, right? But they can't deal with, you know, uh, the public perception side of it. You know, and that's 80% of it. You know, so it's really going to take, in order to, you know, uh, minimize the damage that the terrorists are doing and to minimize um, their chances of succeeding in bringing down the United States. You know, it's really on the people outside of government. And it's really on, uh, you know, policy people and media and experts and, um, you know, people like this to say, okay, is what I'm doing in the best interest of the public? Or is what I'm doing for my own self-interest, right? 
And I'm going to be perfectly honest, I'm not sure we are up to that challenge, but I don't think we really have a choice, right? Um, and I mean, I, I guess that's, that's what I would say, is that, you know, in all the things that you do, in talking about accelerationism, don't be an accelerant, right? Don't you know, talk about things you necessarily don't, you know, know about or, um, you know, a way that can be exploit, uh, a way that can be exploited, right? So you may not know about a certain topic, which is fine, right? But if then, you know, um, the Russians or the terrorists can, you know, sort of do something to make you look completely discredited, you know, that isn't just you being discredited. That's also, quote unquote, the system being discredited, right? That's expertise being discredited. So these things have a much larger impact than just the individual. Um, and I would just be mindful of that. And the fact that we can't demonize all these different groups that are weird, right? Like we can't demonize these radical groups just because they have extremely toxic ideologies. Because those are the people who are going to decide whether or not, you know, they want to participate in this revolutionary action, right? It's not going to be, um, you know, a bunch of bankers in Midtown who are going to, you know, say, okay, well, we're going to join in the revolution, right? It's people like, you know, the incels, or it's people in the fascist circles, or it's, um, you know, anarchists or socialists or, or whomever, you know? These are unpopular ideologies. These are unpopular interest groups, right? Like, these are not mainstream ideas, you know? But we can't demonize them because when the accelerationists go to inspire, you know, um, their members or to take over their groups or to manipulate their groups towards violence, you know, it's those people in those groups that are going to need to push back against them, right? And there's too many little revolutionary, um, you know, groups and niches and interest groups, uh, you know, on the fringes who feel alienated, you know, for, um, you know, us to reach them all. We certainly shouldn't alienate them, um, you know, or paint them with such a broad brush if one person or, or a handful of people from them, you know, carry out a terrorist attack. Um, so I would definitely be mindful of that because another purpose to this, right, like, is this, you know, this suspicion, suspicion around, you know, other people who live in society that, you know, everybody is harboring ill feelings against everybody else. Everybody could be a terror, you know, a potential terror, um, you know, um, and that's just not the case. Like, this is a real minority group, right? Like, there's not there's not that many people who want to overthrow the system at this time. And part of that is probably because most people are, you know, kind of lazy. <laughs> and other people probably don't think it's going to work. Um, and, you know, for, for whatever reason, right? But we do have a lot of nihilistic people, and this does provide an answer to that. You know, but you're not going to solve the nihilism problem by demonizing those people because they're just going to become more more nihilistic, right? You have to give people 
a view of the future that they can see themselves in, right? That they can see themselves um, having a sense of self-determination. Um, and, you know, the way that the terrorists are doing it is through, you know, this uh, revolutionary archetype. But we really are going to need to find, you know, something else, you know, to, to inspire people, to get people away from, um, you know, this very destructive mindset. Um, yeah. And, you know, yeah. it starts with not demonizing. I think there's a, a fine line between not supporting violent ideologies, yet also not alienating individuals within violent ideologies in order to pull them away from the, those violent ideologies. And it's always a tricky task to not support but try to separate the violence looking at the issue of de, as we call it, de-radicalizing, whatever that might be, because there's a lot of debate on what de-radicalization actually is. But this idea of not alienating someone with views so much that they go to the extreme because they don't feel like they can come out of the extreme, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and, and I mean, I should reiterate that I come from a background of counterterrorism. All right. So before I was the director of global analysis at the software company, you know, I worked for, you know, um, years helping to defeat the Islamic State. So I don't deal in ideology. I just deal in violence. Right. That's what I'm mostly concerned about. And there's very much, you know, a difference between, you know, very toxic people, you know, and very toxic people who, you know, um, you know, commit violence. So I'm not, um, you know, pretending to be an expert on how to de-radicalize people. I leave that to people who are, you know, CVE experts. Um, but to stop the violence, you certainly don't want to provoke them, right? And you want them to kick out these accelerationists when they inevitably, you know, try to, you know, um, rile people up. And they're not going to do that um, if you've already alienated them or, or made them more nihilistic about the future. Um, you know, and it's not to say, like you said, we don't support their ideologies. We're not saying that they're not toxic, you know. And I'm also not saying that there's not a proliferation, you know, in these toxic ideologies, particularly in anti-Semitism. But, you know, it's a far cry from uh, people getting up and going to carry out a terrorist attack or going to join an insurrectionary group in order to wage, um, you know, insurgency or guerrilla warfare. You know, it's a very different, uh, a very different thing. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the Loopcast, Jade. I think this is a really interesting talk, and there's so much to unpack and understand because it's really a deep, deep dive into this. I'm going to call it a movement. That's the only way I feel like I can explain accelerationism, and I'm sure a lot of people will disagree with me because I know there's a lot of debate on this. But I really thank you for your time and your expertise on this. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I'm really glad and grateful that people are now taking an interest in accelerationism. Um, because it was a really um, sort of lonely, lonely experience for the last, you know, um, little while until people sort of started getting interest. So I'm really excited to, to share my expertise on this area. Well, thank you. Thanks. Thank you.